Good evening and thank you for the warm welcome. I was going to look over my shoulder. I've been so impressed the way you stood there. And I thought, boy, if these people stand there while I preach, brave souls indeed, but you're not. And that's much wiser. Um, Thank you for the warm welcome. It's been great sharing this mission weekend. And of course, the whole of the Christian life is, is a mission and not just a weekend, therefore. It's a way of life. Although, of course, it's right and proper that there's special times to focus on that subject. And I just want to thank you for, on behalf of those of us who've been allowed to be involved, and that's people who've represented different uh, mission agencies and causes. Thank you for the chance to share that. I work with uh, BMS World Mission, the Baptist Missionary Society, and I, I gave a little kind of statistical and historical rundown this morning. And I'm not going to do all that again uh, tonight, other than to say... These days, BMS works in some 40 countries of the world, which is far... When I was a youngster growing up in a Baptist church, I think BMS worked in about 9 or 10. So there's been a big expansion and, and change in that sense. But what I did want to share tonight is, as Derek said earlier, there's a need to refocus in new situations. And BMS has been going through that kind of change. One of the most um, shocking statistics that's available from within the Christian world is that something like 97% of missionaries, those with that professional job title, 97% work in countries defined as reached with the gospel. Now, the word reach needs to be understood in its kind of semi-technical sense. It means a country in which the gospel is available. Britain is reached. <laughs> well, no it's not, but it's reached in that definition. The gospel is available to people in this country. And there are many parts of the world which fit into that distinction. And the truth is, the countries that are defined as reached are often so because missionaries have operated there. And missionary societies tend to operate, keep working where they've always worked. Indeed, many missionary societies were set up to work in particular parts of the world. And almost constitutionally, they, they have to keep working there, although some have made transitions. And BMS took a look at itself in the mid-1990s and found that two-thirds of its work was happening in countries defined as reached. And they said, that's just not right. And so a process of change began. And we gave ourselves 20 years to make sure that two-thirds of our work, at least, happened in countries defined as completely unreached. And you might say, well, why not 100%? The answer is because although a country might be reached as defined for the gospel, there may be all sorts of other reasons could be extreme poverty, where it's right to do a more holistic approach to mission still in that country. But we believe that the major base of our operations would be in countries where the gospel was not known. And so we gave ourselves 20 years, and that was about seven years ago, and we've already achieved that goal. And that's been a huge shift, and with a lot of pain, and a lot of sacrifice, and a big stepping out of faith. The only thing you could possibly say to me about BMS that would probably actually upset me is to say you are not a faith mission because I would just want to shake you warmly by the throat because we are constantly making plans for new ventures of work for which there are no funds. But we believe it's the right thing to do if you're led that way. And God has honored that through God's people. And so that's the approach we take. And I hope it's bold and I hope it's right. And we haven't neglected many of the places we've worked because many of them are still not reached. I'd love to say that India was a reached nation. But for the vast bulk of the population, they're in complete ignorance of the gospel. The Christian church is not terribly strong in most parts of India. And as an overall statistic, only about 2% of the population would be Christian. But these days, as well as still working places like that, we're in countries in North Africa, South Central Asia, that in a context as public as this, and although you're all utterly trustworthy people in services which are recorded and takes go around the world, we just don't name the countries. But you wouldn't have to think too hard to work out where we're talking about. We now have personnel in places like that, where there isn't even a, a number of statistical significance for the number of Christians in the country. And it's great that mission personnel can be there. And some of it is gentle and slow. Others can be more aggressive. But it's, it's, it's the right place to be. The light needs to shine in darkness. And I just give thanks that through many mission agencies, that is happening around the world. And there are dramatic stories of what God is doing. And and much of it is beyond anyone's control. And actually, when I think about what the New Testament teaches, 
the work of the Spirit will always be like that. Never in our pocket. Never in our test tube to analyze or to manage. Because God does what God does. And He does it right and He does it well. And we get thanks for that. It's a privilege to be with you. I want to read from Isaiah chapter 58. It's just one of the really easy bits of the Bible to find. You know, the big books of the Bible are never the problem. So, Old Testament and Isaiah chapter 58. And it's one of these prophetic passages where sometimes it's, it's, it's God, as it were, instructing the prophet what he's to say to the people. And sometimes it's God, as it were, speaking directly to the people. You, you will make sense of it. Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. And to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They they seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right. And has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. And seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and, and you have not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed. Yet... And God now speaks directly to people. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call. And the Lord will answer. You will cry for help. And He will say, Here am I. Amen. passage divides itself into two major sections. And the first has all to do with futility or superficiality, if you like, of, of doing something which is actually worthless. I walked along Princess Street a little bit yesterday afternoon and dived quickly into one or two shops, as you do, and uh, thinking, I wonder if I can, you know, in half an hour do all my Christmas shopping. Uh, no, I cannot do all my Christmas shopping in half an hour. Not can anyone. There, but lots of people were doing their, their Christmas shopping. I was given something as a Christmas present last year. And it was, it was part of a tracksuit, tracksuit bottoms, because I joined the gym. And my daughter was convinced I was actually at last serious about getting really fit. I wonder if it would tax your intellect and insight to guess how many times since last Christmas I've been to the gym and I've worn those tracksuit trousers. Would anyone like to name a number? One. Overstated. None. None. I don't think she will be buying me anything like that this year, but in order to rescue my personal embarrassment, self-inflicted embarrassment at this point, let me ask you, this is the appeal at the beginning of the sermon, I want to hands up here. If you have ever, with an ambition of becoming fit, bought a book on fitness, read magazine articles on on fitness as a kind of special thing you needed to read, bought trainers, tracksuit equipment, 
joined the gym or had ambitions of going swimming or something like that and didn't deliver on it, please admit to your foolishness that would get anywhere like mine. Is it? See that? What honest people! And I think there were a few more! And we do this. If I read the article on fitness, I'll be fitter. If I own the trainers, I've taken the first step. No, you haven't. You're supposed to wear them and run in them or something. Buying them doesn't do it. But we play these little games of imagining that we've actually achieved something by going through the motions. I used to play... I used to play rugby for several teams. I, I, I have played at Murrayfield on, on one of the pitches out the back, as it were. And it really, really was coarse rugby. I mean, this is how it should not be done. This was people who threw the ball away rather than be tackled. You know the kind of thing. And I remember there was one guy who always was put, put, when the opposition were attacking, which was usually, would always make the most spectacular gestures of tackling. There's the Hulk coming at you, and there would be this kind of swan-like show of seeming to try and grab him and drag him down, but making sure he never did anything other than just brush his fingers lightly against the guy. So it looked good. But he always just ran on and scored. It was a gesture. Didn't actually achieve anything. Looked good, didn't do anything. And a lot of the time our activities in the world are for sure and aren't all that effective. Sometimes actually what we do is something very different from what we'd like people to think. Uh, my parents lived at one time in, in Kirkcaldy. They decided to move houses on the estate where they lived. It was up at the top end of Kirkcaldy, Dunnakia, if anyone knows the town. And uh, a, a wimpy estate, lots of houses. And they made the mistake, if you like, of uh, having bought the next house without having sold the one they were in, got into a kind of difficulty of a bridging loan situation, couldn't sell the house because there were lots of new ones being built on the estate at that time, so people could always just go and buy a new house, ready choice available. Why would they buy my mum and dad's house. My father heard that the salesman selling the new houses for Wimpy was under certain circumstances willing to point people down the road to a house that, where the garden had been dug, the garage had been erected, the decor was already sorted out. He visited the man, the sum in question was £50, £50 changed hands, the salesman directed someone down the road and my parents had a buyer within a week. The Wimpy salesman was supposed to sell for Wimpy but he wasn't actually doing that. And within another two weeks, he was sacked. But giving the appearance of doing one thing and not actually doing it, sometimes, if I could keep the illustrations rolling for a minute, sometimes what we do is not so much pretending one thing and not delivering on it, like my fitness illustrations, or pretending one thing and actually doing something else. But sometimes what happens in our lives is just a brief, flourish of enthusiasm. It's a kind of thing we are interested in, and if you like, committed to, but not for life. I mean, just for a time. I've had my phases with lots of kind of hobbies and all that sort of thing. Photography for a time was, was my thing. And I, I used to know everything you could reasonably know about, I'm talking about traditional cameras here. And I would know about the different lenses and, and bodies. I knew every model of camera that was on sale in the UK at that time, I could have told you all its features, all its distinctives, the advantages over shutter priority, over aperture priority when it came to automatic cameras as they came in. I belonged to the Edinburgh Photographic Society, which met, if I remember, in Great King Street. And I'd go there on a Wednesday night for a lecture. People put on these posh slideshows, as they were then, with dissolved techniques between different projectors. And we always got to question the speaker afterwards. And people would put their hand up and say, you remember that shot? And we'd put it back up on screen. What F-stop did you use? And he would say, F-8. F-8! Not F-16! No! And this was important. But we were into all of that kind of stuff and so on. 
Golf used to be my thing, and I still love the time to do it, just don't. But I, I used to know again every brand of club on sale. Could have told you almost every player playing on the European tour. I knew about different kind of heads for the wooden clubs, the persimmon and the, the laminate, because they're all metal these days. But I knew the difference with the irons between cast heads and forged heads and exactly how wide the groove should be to give maximum backspin, the different dimple patterns you could have on a ball, the different compression ratios on the golf ball. I couldn't play the thing, but I knew all of that because I was into it. At another point in my life, it was motorcycling. These things were never all at the same time, please understand. The first motorcycle I ever owned was sold to me by a charlatan. He was a Baptist minister. I, I owned it. I owned it for two years and its total running time, I don't mean adding up all the times I was on it, but the total number of hours or weeks in which it ran amounted to the equivalent of about three weeks in two years. The rest of the time it was broken down. I lived up Collington Road at the time. I parked it on the street. It got stolen. I rejoiced at last it gone. But the thieves couldn't get it going either. So it came back. And every motorbike, apart from that one, because it never went, every other motorbike I've owned, I've crashed. Thinking of Collington Road, my, one of my best crashes was up there. You know, if you're going away up Collington Road and you come towards the barracks and the road takes a sharp sweep to the right, it's wise to brake. So I pulled. So I thought I was pulling on the brakes, but I'd got my first bike where the clutch was up there. I thought it was the brake. It wasn't. Pull the clutch and bike didn't slow down at all. Did not make it round the bend. There was this plaintive voice of mine on the phone to a young lady saying, I've fallen off the bike and I'm a bit in the tatters. Could you come and sort me? So this dear young lady came and sorted me and she was quite good at it, so I married her. And, uh, hey, God works in all things. And uh, actually my best crash of all was when I decided to do the advanced motorcycling test because uh, you can see I needed to. And uh, no, I was in Aberdeen by that time and nobody was there who could train me. And so I just read a few books and kind of boned up on it, applied to the Institute of Advanced Motoring to do the advanced test. And the way they do these things is they appoint a police class one rider, instructor in fact he was, to come and he would do what they call a pursuit test, which means he's, he's on his bike right behind you, and he's watching what you do with the gears and the clutch and the brakes and, and the angles through the bend, all this kind of thing, and he'd give you a route to follow, and he's there behind you. And it actually seemed to be going quite well, and it was, until near the very end, coming back into the city, approaching traffic lights, and it was a green, and I was going for it, but just as I got there, the amber came on and it was going to red. Now, what do you do? And in that microsecond of thinking time, I knew that there was a, a chance I could stop. And the highway code said, if you can stop under control, you must stop. I was on a test. I thought, I can stop under control, therefore I must. And I did. But he couldn't. And he hit me from behind. With an immense wallet, we both ended up on the ground. He dashed nearly took my leg off. We scrambled back to our feet. And he said, oh, are you all right? I said, I think so. Oh, he said, that was my fault. Listen, I better just pass you. Hey! <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> was worth it. And we founded a motor club, motorbikers club together to teach others, because we were obviously such fine examples. And, uh, and it went on from there. I was really into these things. And now, none of them. See, I still own the motorbike. In the last year, I've ridden it twice. Not because I wouldn't like to, just, I don't have time. There are other things to do. And all I'm trying to say is there are some things, some things where we think we're going to do something, actually don't do it. There are some things where we pretend what we're doing, actually we're doing something else. And there are other things we were in it for a time. But actually, it just doesn't last. It's a thing of the moment. And what's been talked about in the first verses of Isaiah 58 fits somewhere in maybe more than one of those kind of categories. Because these people made all the right kind of noises, said all the right kind of things. Because it's quite interesting 
that um, God describes to Isaiah, verse 2 for example, day after day they seek me out, eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right, hasn't forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions, seem eager for God to come near them. What's wrong with that? I mean, this is good stuff. But the problem is that it's all a pretense. Or at best it's fleeting. Or it's superficial. Because actually when it comes to day-to-day living, it's not like that. Look at the second half of verse 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And you exploit all your workers. Verse 4, your fasting ends and quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. All the superficial things of religion, but actually no delivery with any integrity in the way that they actually were living. And Christianity cannot be like that. God says in verse 1 of these peop- about these people that this is rebellion and that this is sin. Superficially, it looked good. looked like all the right things were in place. But actually, God has no time at all for these people's behavior. Christianity cannot be a thing of show. Christianity cannot be a thing we pick up when it suits us and dump when it doesn't suit us. Jesus had some strong words to say as to what discipleship actually meant. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me. I find there is a kind of folk theology goes around that there are two kinds of Christians. They're the kind of first class Christians. They're the ones who become missionaries, you see. Because they're kind of completely wrapped up in God's service. And then there's the rest of us. Actually, sometimes people break it down to second class, third class, and even fourth class. But at the very least, there's the first class, they're just a few, and then there's the rest of us who are just ordinary folk. And we kind of go on with our lives and we do the kind of Christian things that we're supposed to do, but actually... You know, we're not like the rest. Hey, I don't read that in the New Testament. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to take up the cross? We've kind of lost the metaphor because we're so familiar with it. To those people hearing Jesus, and bear in mind this was actually spoken before he went to the cross, but they knew what the Romans did. And they knew what it meant when someone went out carrying the cross. It meant they were on the way to die. They didn't carry the cross and come back because they were dead. Jesus said, and that's how it is if you're going to follow me. You will die to self. You must deny self if you're going to follow me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. See, we're not people with a hobby. We're not people with some kind of Shared interests together. We are people who belong to God. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That's what that verse says. That's what we are. Children of God. And I want to ask you tonight, what is your religion? Because frankly, I want you to come here every Sunday. But I need to say to you, if that's kind of all it is, and it can be other meetings you might go to as well, whether in a home or some other place, but if that's your Christianity, and there really isn't an awful lot more than that, I have to tell you that's worthless. If it's not being lived out, if Jesus hasn't actually got your life, if, you're not, if He's not Lord of all things in your life, every relationship, every ambition, every word, every thought, and I'm not meaning to teach perfectionism here as if you never get it wrong, but I'm talking about where your focus is, where your goal is, where the drive is of your life. It must be Jesus. And it's very easy to say it's Jesus. But what is the evidence of how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you form your relationships, and how you behave in your morals? What is the evidence as to who owns your life? When I was coming up to, uh, I think it was my 12th birthday, just before, excuse me, the jacket needs to come off, it's kind of warm up here. When I was coming up to my 12th birthday, my dad said to me, what is it you would like for your birthday? And I said, I'd like a putter, because I was into golf. 
and I wanted a putter. And I'd always had his cut down kind of clubs, and I never had any of my own. They were never the right size for me. Can't cut down a club and exactly be perfectly balanced. Just wanted at least one club that was for me. And we lived in Cooper in Fife, and so it was just nine miles from St. Andrews. So my dad took me along to St. Andrews, and we went into all the golf shops. And there in one, we tried out all the putters, and they always have these kind of little bits of carpet and a pretend hole at one end. You can try the putters out with a few balls and this kind of thing. We tried out lots of putters, and there was one that was just right. And you know, the ball just seemed to go into the hole a lot more often with that one. We turned it upside down, looked at the name in the bottom. Jack Nicklaus Putter. And it was 1962. And he was just becoming real famous. And I knew that if I had a Jack Nicholas putter, I'd putt like Jack Nicholas, Of course. And I said to my dad, that's the one I want. He picked up the little ticket on it and to check the price. Six pounds, ten shillings. Six pounds, ten shillings. And he said, that's a lot of money. It's more than I thought I'd be paying. I said, oh, Dad, please. And other words to that effect. And he said, okay. He said, I will buy that putter for your birthday on just one condition. Because he said, that is a good putter. But it's an expensive putter. He said, I'll buy it for you on one condition. It's your putter. But when I'm playing, this is my dad speaking, when I'm playing in some big competition, I have to be allowed to borrow the putter. I said, that's okay. I was getting the putter. He wanted to borrow it sometimes. No problems. And so, the putter was bought, I got it, went out on my birthday, or maybe it was the next day, I don't remember now, and it was just all that I had ever dreamed. As I putted that day, it didn't matter if the putt was 4 feet or 40 feet, it went right in the hole every time. Well, that's how I remember it. And it was just fantastic and fabulous. And the next day, my dad was playing in a big competition, and he said to me, I'm just borrowing the putter. And I said, that's fine. My dad died about four years ago. And I sorted out his effects. And there was the putter. And that was the first time I got it back. I loved my dad dearly. But he was a thief. Whose putter? In name, mine. In reality, his, I think. Who has your life? Do you say it's Jesus? That reality? A man called Thomas Comber became a BMS missionary, went to Africa, first of all, in 1876, and after some very dramatic, courageous journeys in a part of the world that wasn't even mapped properly back in the 1870s, decided he couldn't possibly go on working on his own. He needed a wife, so he came back, found someone willing to marry him and go to Africa with him. And a couple of years later, he took his wife, Minnie, to Africa. And she died within four months of arrival, as did many in those days. Comber was broken-hearted, but he continued to work because he's such a burden for the lost of Central Africa. Eventually, he came back to Britain, and he spoke at some immense missionary gatherings up and down the country. And at one in London, where literally thousands turned out, they were shocked when they saw him, because they knew he was aged 32, but he looked like an old man, because over and over again, his body had experienced disease, and it was already somewhat wasted. And he preached on the text, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now that's John chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus using the analogy of a seed. That actually that seed has to be put in the ground, and there it kind of dissolves, it dies. If it doesn't go in the ground, it will never be more than a single seed. But let it die... And a great harvest can come from that seed. That was the text. And his message to the crowds was that he was willing for, for death. And if it was to take his wife's life and to take his life for the people of Africa to have eternal life, so be it. 
Because actually that's what he'd signed up for when he gave his life to Jesus. He laid down all the rights and entitlement to his life. He'd given them all to Jesus. And whatever Jesus wanted to do with him, that was alright with him if it meant eternal life for the people of Africa. And he returned to Africa. And Comber was dead within two years. And I've told that story in Congo, in Africa. And I've said to have lost his wife within four months and to have laid down his life by the age of 34 on any human measure is a waste. And the people of Africa said it's not at all a waste, almost angry with me. Because there is a church today in Africa because there was a generation willing to lay down its life for us. And I want to know where the John 12, 24 generation is now. Or do we just go through the motions? Do we just sing the songs, say the prayers, listen to the sermons, and talk about Christian things? Where's the living out of it all? Where is the ownership by God of our lives? Through Isaiah, the word is, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. God says you can't fast like that. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. It doesn't come doesn't work. It's not real religion. Our faith must be more than empty religion because empty religion, superficial religion, is worthless. I said there were two sections to the passage. Thankfully there is. And one that's far more positive, if you like. And it's to do with the fact that lived out faith has eternal value. Verses 6 and 7. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, says God, to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And God is simply saying, I want my people involved in the needs of this world. And friends, this world has just so many deep, needs. When I visited Congo last year and I was in some of the most rural areas places where no one's been able to go because of warfare but for some peace in some places it was possible to get in to some of these remote village townships and there I found in many of the places next to no girls aged 12 to 17, 18 and so on because they'd already been taken by enemy soldiers carried away off to whoever imagines what was happening in their lives. Or else they've been hidden in the jungle by their families. In some places the people said, we don't have anyone anymore with the skills to build houses. I said, well you used to have people like that, why do you not have them now? And they said, because for 20, 30 years we have hardly been able to afford any food to eat. And when you can't eat, you don't pay someone to mend your roof or build a wall. You just get by. And places where in the classrooms, the desks, the seats, and you need to understand this is nothing like Western desks. You talk about plank on some posts, two different heights. You've got a seat, you've got a desk. Just broken. And what broke my heart was them trying to hold them on so I could take a photograph of them. And it was, in the best sense, pathetic, moving, touching, agonizing. And the world should not be like that. Three years ago, there was a massive double, a double super cyclone in Orissa. On two separate days, about two weeks apart, a super cyclone occurred in Orissa in India, way on the, on the eastern edge of India, as the, the, the mighty winds crashed in. Some speeds around 160 miles an hour. Massive tidal waves sweeping ashore. No one knows even yet if it was 10, 20 50 or 100,000 people died in that. I was there within two or three weeks and our BMS action team, four young people who were already working in another part of India, we moved them down to Orissa to help with the distribution of, of relief aid. It was one of the most formative experiences of these young people's lives. In one village they went into to give out some aid, one of the young women called Jenny, 
a, a grandmother, and we don't know where the mother was, but the grandmother thrust this little baby of about three months into Jenny's arms and through someone interpreting said, please take the little baby back to Britain with you because if the baby lives here in this devastation, she'll die. And the grandmother was right. And Jenny knew she could not take the baby back to Britain and had to hand the baby back to the grandmother almost certainly to die. And this is not how the world ought to be. This year, I was in, I was in Nepal, went to a town just north of the, of the Indian border, in Nepal, but just north of India, uh, called Nepogunj, and there's a fantastic Christian clinic there. And amongst the folks I saw in Nepogunj was a young man whose name was Lal, L-E-L, Lal, sitting in a wheelchair, not looking as if he was understanding terribly much of what was going on. And I sat and talked to him and someone explained his story because Lal couldn't tell it to me. Here it is in a nutshell. Lal actually came from a small town just up amongst the hills, not too far from Nepogunj, but in another province. And when he was about 16, the Maoists, now they are in some people's eyes freedom fighters and other people's eyes terrorists, but trying to unsettle overthrow the government and bring change and so on. They came to Lao as a 16-year-old and said, you must join us and you've got to fight for us and you've got to plant bombs for us. And Lao said, I don't want to do that. They beat him senseless and said, we're coming back for you. And Lao knew they would. And they beat him or even kill him if he, if he didn't join. Lao fled. And as a sort of 17-year-old, he came to Nepogunj. And all he wanted to do was continue his education and live a reasonable life. But the police knew that this young man had arrived who'd grown up in a village where the Maoists ruled. So as far as they were concerned, he must surely be a Maoist. So they arrested him. They put him in prison. And every day they beat him and they tortured him. And he wouldn't confess because he had nothing to confess. So they beat him and tortured him some more. After five months, his body was so wrecked by daily tortures for five months that he'd become ill. They put him into hospital temporarily. He got a little bit better, so he was allowed out again. They put him back in prison and for another two months, beat him and tortured him again every day until his body was so wrecked they gave up on him and threw him out. And the Christians took him in. And there he sat in that wheelchair and he's paralyzed down one side and had some sort of brain injury that meant he couldn't quite function and had cerebral TB for which they were treating him. And I felt angry and I felt distressed that nobody had been there to stand up for the Laos of this world. And I told that story of Laos just after I came back at a big meeting down in Cardiff that I was involved with in front of a couple of thousand people. And I told the story of Laos just as I told it to you now. And that was on the 4th of May this year. And what I didn't know is that as I told that story on the 4th of May, Lyle died that day. Eighteen. Life over. Beaten. Tortured. Because he wouldn't join the Maoists who was accused of having been one of their members. Friends, the world should not be like this. And when we hear stories like this, sometimes we feel impotent. What could I do? And sometimes the instinct is just to retreat away and make sure that we go along the road to Next, or Topshop, or Marks and Spencers, or wherever, and look after ourselves and our friends and family, because we can't cope with the bad world out there. You know the parable of the Good Samaritan. What did the priest and the Levite do wrong? Did they not go to church? Did they not say their prayers? Did they not learn the Scriptures? They did all of that. What they didn't do was stop and help a hurt, hurt and wounded and bleeding man lying in the road. And a Samaritan did. And Jesus said, he loved his neighbor. And God's people cannot shut out that broken and hurting world. We cannot walk by on the other side. We can't fail to care. We can't not be bothered with it. This is our business. This is the fast that God has chosen. We cannot be so busy 
doing our religious things that we don't care for the needs of the people around us in the city, in this country, and in fact anywhere in the world. One of the passages that is discomforting in the New Testament is James chapter 2. Let me just read a few verses from verse 14 to verse 17 of James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? A man who claims to have faith but no deeds, can such faith save him? Now the question, interestingly, is what is saving faith? James is writing, can someone who says he has faith and actually isn't living it out, has no deeds, can that kind of faith save him? Suppose, he goes on, a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. So we're talking about some need out there in the world. And if one of you says to the person without clothes and daily food, on your way, go, I wish you well, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if not accompanied by action, is dead. My friends, ruthlessly and honestly, what is that saying? It is saying that a faith that is not translated into a life lived out like Jesus, it's just dead. It's not working. It's worthless. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. People might have life. Life to the full. Most of the world does not have life to the full. Because most of the world doesn't know Jesus. And most of the world tonight doesn't have food to eat or clean water to drink or does not have freedom from oppression and exploitation. And frankly, if we don't get involved and get on the side of caring for that lost, broken and hurting world, then what worth our faith? We are called to be those who change the world. And we maybe can't change all the world, but that's no excuse to do nothing for the world. I'd rather do something than nothing. God says, here's the fast I have chosen. Loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke. Set the oppressed free. And break every yoke. What are you doing with your life? You know, it's interesting. I looked around who's here tonight. And there's an odd little assembly that not just too many of us here would know about. But there's four people here who once tried to do something together. One's my dear friend Harry Strange, who lives over in Fife these days. And Barry and Maureen Sprott up there. And the four of us at one point in our lives back in the 1970s and into the early 80s tried very hard to reach people in Craig Miller with the gospel. And hey, that was a hard place. And you folks are recognizing the work in Nidri next week and I'm glad you're doing that. Because it's in the dark places of the world that we must be working. And Craig Miller was a pretty dark place then as it still is now. Nidri is all kind of one big area. Multiple deprivation. Lots of changes there now. Still great need. I still remember the places I would go to where people had no furniture. Other people with no furniture other than one huge television. Odd priorities that some people have. I remember the folks who used to come to the door to beg and to borrow and of course they never returned anything. I remember the folk who came all the time to check the electricity meter because they just assumed we must be trying to steal the electricity by the officials who came and did that kind of thing. I remember the problem and the distress that we had with mice and with fleas around the place and with young children and uh, it was a difficulty but it was riddled throughout the buildings where, where we lived in Craig Miller Castle Terrace. I still remember my wife trying to deal with about the cats and dogs who... Um, who urinated in the stairway in which we lived, and she would go out with a pepper and shake it up and down the stair and say, that'll make them sting next time they do that. And, uh, and the fights in the street. And I tell you, it was a lot better than a middle-class area where perhaps it wouldn't have happened, but I don't know, maybe it would, but no one would have... Well, they'd look from behind curtains. No, in Craig Miller! Through the window up, people leaned out and cheered on whoever they wanted to win. 
And I remember the folk who used to elbow me in the stairs and say, what are you doing here? And I'd try and speak to them about Jesus and they just laugh. And I remember the guy who brought me some sound recording equipment banged on the door. We lived on the first floor and he said, when he got in, can you... And no one had doorbells, you see, but can you then come down and help me with the rest of the gear? And I went down to his car and he opened up the boot. And there was just one microphone lead. Nothing else, still to come up, just one microphone the lead. And I said to him, what did you need me for? And he looked around at the boarded up windows. And he looked around at the, uh, um, the, the lout standing around. And he looked at the refuse that was everywhere. And he just said, how can you live here? I was frightened, he said. That's why I needed you. How can you live here? And you know, I don't actually remember now what I said to him. But I know why we were there. And I know why my friends who I've mentioned were there. Because it was a place of darkness. And I tell you, Craig Miller, Nidri is actually a lot better than many places in the world. And I've never, ever yet understood how come all the Christians get guidance to live in the nice places. How come we all seem to get guidance, or most of us get guidance, to live in this country and look after ourselves and have a nice income and have a great pension if we possibly can still these days. And equip our homes and decorate them and have a great time and just shut out the rest of the world. When I was a brand new Christian, I was living just the far side of the meadows. I'd made my commitment in the little beds that I lived in there. I remember one night feeling, I need to do something for the down and outs of Edinburgh. I was moved on their behalf. And in my newfound faith, I was determined to go out and save some down and outs. And I went down to the grass market, because especially in those days, it's kind of gone up market, up the grass market these days. But it was very much a place where the, the winos and so on had their doss houses, the hostels and so on. So I went down to the grass market and I walked the length and breadth on a cold November night. It was November. It was a cold night. And there wasn't one wino with a decency to need to be saved. And I walked up and down. There were none of them there. No one in distress. And I kind of gave up and I walked along and up that, the long way out on the kind of, I've forgotten the name of it, but walking with, towards Full Cross coming out of, of the, the grass market. And in those days, and I don't think it's there anymore, but as you walked up that way, opposite some of the government offices there, there was a church. And on the steps of that church, which was all shut up for the night, there was a figure lying. And I knelt down beside this man, and he was alive, but only just. And the smell of alcohol and of urine reeked to the heavens. And I thought, if this man keeps lying on these stone steps, he's going to die of something like hypothermia. I've got to do something to help him. And I tried to stir him, but apart from a little mumbling and a dribble from the mouth, there was no, no response coming from him at all. And I couldn't lift him by myself. And I kind of looked at the other folk passing by, but nobody was for stopping. Nobody wanted to get involved. And for about ten minutes, with only the gentlest stirrings from the man, I kept trying to lift his head and make sure he's passageway was clear and he could breathe and trying to get him to get some consciousness so I could get him up and get some help and so on. Nobody was stopping. Eventually I saw two policemen coming up the hill from the grass market the way I'd just come ten minutes previously. And I thought, at last! And there they were on the pavement beside us coming towards me and I saw them exchange a conversation between themselves as they saw me. And they crossed the road and walked on on the other side. And I was so astounded, I couldn't even call out to them. And I was praying, God, help. And five minutes later, someone at last did stop. Another drunk. And he said, you needn't any help, Jimmy. You understand, of course, the generality of the name James in this context. And I said, I was thinking to myself, well, yes, I do, but I'm not going to get it from you. I said, well, I'm trying to help this guy. Oh, he says, I'll see what I can do. I'll go way down to the grass market and get somebody for you. And off he wandered, uh, weaved his way down into the grass market. And I thought, that's the end of him. Ten minutes later, two very sober people came back with him. And they said, we weren't sure whether to believe him or not, but we thought we'd better check it out. And so there they were, and there were now three of us. So we could get this unconscious figure up and between us, kind of lift him and half carry him. Took him down to the grass market. There was a soup kitchen there. He eventually began to come round a wee bit at least. 
with the help we were able to give, we found an address in his pocket. We took him to where the address was. Someone had a car, and we went to where this address was. The door was open. There was this middle-aged woman. Took one look. Her face went white as a sheet. And when she half recovered, she said, that's my brother. And he's been in a drying out clinic for three months. And this was his first day out on trust. And she took him in. And the lesson above all I learned that night is that the fine citizens of Edinburgh, and it could have been anywhere, but the fine citizens will walk by. Somebody. And surely of the somebodies, it ought to be God's people. Somebody has to stop. And in Jesus' name, has to care. Friends, I'm nearly finished, but I want to just show you one little bit of video before I stop. A, a year or two back, I went to North Korea because BMS works in North Korea, not South Korea, North Korea. The world's probably the most Stalinist, communist state left in the world where every movement is completely controlled by the government. And I was warned that everything we said and everything we did was probably being listened to. And I was really grateful to my BMS colleagues for pointing out to me as we went to the hotel that we had to stay in, in Pyongyang, the capital, and we had no choice of the hotel. Everything was controlled. We were told the rooms were allocated. That's where we had to be. But I was really grateful for them pointing out to me that the huge mirror on one wall was two ways so they could watch. I was grateful they told me. I just wish it had been on check-in, not on check-out. But there you go. And BMS has been involved in practical aid. North Korea probably is the most aided nation on earth because its people are starving and dying. Out of a 22 million population in North Korea, about 2, mil 2 million, some 10% have died in the last six years. Mostly through malnutrition, sometimes through natural disasters. The nation contends, continues to invest immensely in its armed forces. Per head of population, is the largest army by far of any nation on earth. And it's dying on its feet. And it's a privilege to be involved there. I, we could not make any kind of proper film. And I asked permission to use a camcorder and they didn't want me to do that. And we certainly weren't allowed to do it anywhere near where any of the armed forces were. And I said, well, I need to tell people back in Britain what it's like if you expect us to bring aid. And they said, okay. And they allowed me to do a little shooting in Pyongyang, the capital. And then we went to a, a district town called Sarawan where we've been helping in a hospital and in an orphanage. And what you're about to see is only last three minutes. And please bear in mind, this is not one of BMS's professional films. This is me in a camcorder. Um, but the, what I, fil I saw, I filmed. You need to know that the hospital and the orphanage, some of the scenes are disturbing. If it's difficult, sit and pray for a while. But you also need to know that's probably the very best. Because they simply wouldn't have let us see anything other than the best. Please watch.